I am a human being and I killed human beings. Before I knew it, I had fired four shots at the door. I kept on shouting for Reva to phone the police. Tests are underway to determine if a serial killer is on the loose in Centurion Pretoria. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. In South Africa, 57 people are murdered every single day. These are the stories of the killers and the people who hunt them. I think society deserves to be protected from me and from others like me. It's November 6th, 1991. Prince's cream is topping the charts and Nadine Gordimer has just won the Nobel Peace Prize for Literature. State President F.W. de Klerk recently announced a new constitution that will provide suffrage for people of all races. And a man is climbing through a window in the trendy suburb of Norwood in Johannesburg. A 35-year-old white female is asleep. He undresses without waking her. It's his intention to rape her. Awake now, she tries to delay him with conversation. Eventually, he rapes her, but she won't die that day. Others won't be so lucky. My name is Paul Llewell and I'm a journalist curious about Africa's killers, criminals and the cops who catch them. Joining me to discuss the reality behind crime on the continent is Jared Labaskachny, the former cop and current head of LNS Threat Management, who led the investigative psychology section of the South African Police Service from 2001 until 2016. In his time there, he worked on over 300 serial murder and rape cases and he is The Profiler. Please visit our YouTube page and subscribe. We're available on iTunes, SoundCloud and Spotify. Simply search Profiler and you can engage with us on our social media pages, Twitter and Insta. Our handle is at Profiler Africa and please join the group on Facebook. We're keen to hear your feedback, field your questions and listen to suggested topics. So do get in touch. Remember that we will post content on our social pages that relate to the crimes that we discuss so that you can better engage with the discussion and see what it is that we're talking about. So let's set the scene. It's the early 90s. Tell us a little bit about the state of serial crime investigation at this point in our history. Yes, I mean, this is the, I always like to say it's the cusp of the explosion of serial murder cases in South Africa, you know, which would, you know, would have been about 1994, 93, the Satole case and other people, the Station Strangler. So this was really before we really understood serial murder for what it is now, if we look back um, before we really had people trained, before the, the, the investigative psychology unit existed, um, we weren't training detectives to deal with serials. In fact, probably even the word serial murder wasn't really one that was common parlance at that point in time. So this is really like that first, as I said, when you look back, you realize it's the first. At the time, you kind of have no idea. But it's the first one we really started to look at as, as maybe as more of a serial kind of case understanding. Not that we didn't have them before, mm. but I almost like to see this as the first of the modern serial murders in South Africa. Yeah. And this really was a crime at the time that was very, very spoken about just generally in the press and in the media in South Africa. Mm. Um, 
And maybe that's it's interesting to look at how a kind of interest just generally amongst the public in serial crime really started to emerge mm. in that period. If you think about it, it's the same kind of time that movies like Silence of the Lambs are coming out. Um, that series of books that were written around, um, you know, that that movie was based off. So, so yeah, this was when mm. serial crime kind of came into the popular culture space, if you like. Yeah. And if you look at some of the, the, the news inserts, TV news inserts at the time, and they're talking, you know, they're interviewing psychiatrists yeah. about this case, and it's almost kind of like it's, you know, it's, it's kind of, I want to say laughable now, but yeah. if you realize it reflects how much of the early phases this was in terms of Southern understanding this from a South African point of view about yeah. this guy must be taunting the police because he's doing this around a police station. And, and you know, what we know nowadays with sort of serial murder behavior, we would have interpreted that information quite differently to back then. Let's talk about where this all started. Where did the story of the Norwood, Norwood serial rapist start? And we call him, this, he is referred to as the Norwood serial rapist, yeah. although he was the Norwood serial killer. Yeah, I've almost kind of given up trying to tell people that, no, we should refer to him as Norwood serial murderer because he raped and murdered. Yes, yeah. he had a few cases where he just raped and a few break-ins, but his main thing, specifically as his series progressed, was, was really the rape and murder of his victims. But people still refer to him as a Norwood serial rapist. Again, early in the times... You know, the labels, we, we stick to things, you know, and how we look at it now, again, is, is quite different. Mm. So, yeah, his, his kind of criminal history spans 89 to 92. Now, again, um, that doesn't mean that from 1989 people were investigating a serial murderer. They would not have even realized, in fact, that the first case was part of this series. Uh, so what, when we say 89 to 92, it's only later on in the series that people started to realize uh, we think we have someone who's doing the same thing and we have what we now would refer to as a serial murderer. So you mentioned, so his crime spree essentially happened from 1989 to 1992. What evidence do we, what do we know about him prior to that? Yeah, um, again, it, nothing that stands out. You know, he, his parents were married, still married at the time of the crimes. Um, obviously, his father sub subsequently deceased. He was born in 1966. No brothers or sisters. Um, nothing significantly out of the ordinary in his family. You know, his mom was a bit more dominant, dad was a bit more quiet, but again, lots of families are like that. No developmental problems that was, were noted. Had meningitis as a child, no girlfriend at school. And after leaving school in about 1986, he joined the, the railway police, which back then was something separate to the South African Police Service. Um, that later merged with the South African Police Service and he became a member of the, of the SAPS. History of petty theft, but in the sense of you know, he would tell me that if he, his mom's friends would come and visit, he would kind of go through the handbags and steal some money and go play video games with the money. Okay. Um, so not breaking into people's houses like we saw during the actual series. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that that's not really petty theft because I used to do that. That's, that's just normal household behavior. <laughs> yeah, there you okay. go. So um, we inverted commas petty theft. Yeah. <laughs> so at the time, at the, at the bulk of his crimes, uh, at the time he was staying at the uh, Norwood Police Barracks. So that some police stations back in those days would have barracks attached to it mm -hmm. and, and some wouldn't. So he was actually staying there for the majority of his series. Uh, had a fiancé at the time that he was engaged in these behaviours and was about 22 at the time of his first actual murder that, that we are aware of. Now, what's important as well, what we must just mention up front, is that you, sp you spoke to him extensively. So this is a man that you have 
a, a very good knowledge of, which I think is important. Just just talk a little yeah. bit about that. So I, I first got to, obviously at the time I'd heard of the series, yes, like yes, members yes. of the public had. This was way before I was even qualified. I mean, I finished school in 1989. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was at that time, 1990, I was in the army. So yeah. kind of just picking up what I heard at the time it was in the media. Um, but when I was doing my master's in clinical psychology, we had to do a dissertation. And my topic I chose was serial murder which involved me interviewing a number of serial murderers in our prisons. So Kurbus Heldness was one of the people who was one of my original participants in my studies. And then, of course, when I did my doctorate, I went back and re-interviewed him and a few others. So I probably spent three or four years, um, once a week, once every two weeks, depending as the research progressed, interviewing him. Um, A little bit about the crimes in the beginning, but the rest of it was just sort of, hey, what's happened since I last seen you? What's going on? How do you you view that? So not therapeutic in nature. But um, but really just kind of getting an understanding of, of him as an individual. Um, at the time, I mean, how difficult? You're a student now. You've you've decided to kind of go academically in this direction and research this topic. How difficult was it for you to get access to him at the time? What what process did you have to go through to get access to him in those days? You know, it was surprisingly easy. Um, so yes, it was master's research, which is a bit more advanced in yeah. terms of the academic studies. But my colleague who was doing his master's with me, uh, Kurbus Duplessis, was in the police and he was given time off to come and qualify as a psychologist. And he suggested we go do this topic. And I thought, well, it sounds interesting. Why not? And we went to go see Mika Pistorius. At then, obviously, was sort of um, by 1994, 95, at the time when I was doing my research, was sort of the, the person to go to in terms yeah. of serials. Discussed it with her. She kind of gave her informal blessing. And we made an application to uh, correctional services to to interview him, and it was approved. So, not as difficult as one would expect. If I speak to my colleagues in the United States and say, and, and I tell them that I was interviewing serial murderers as part of my master's and doctorate, they're like, "Wow, how on earth did you get access?" So, yeah. quite easy, which I think is 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 great. Um, yeah. Obviously, they have the right not to participate ultimately mm-hmm. uh, in the actual research itself, but even getting access to, to ask them that question can sometimes overseas be literally impossible. Yeah. You're a student, and this is the first, you know, so this is the first real flesh and blood criminal that you're going to speak to. Get, uh, you know, we talk of, obviously, we can benefit from all of your kind of academic insights, and we'll mm-hmm. talk about that. But here, yeah, give us a little sense of Gerard, the student, walking up the steps to the prison the first time to meet him. Talk a little bit about your kind of frame of mind then. What do you... Yeah, so, I mean, obviously myself and, and my colleague um, had gone to look at the case dockets, which were at the, I think at that point, at the police museum in Pretoria. So we knew kind of what the crime scenes were about, etc. And then, yeah, I made the application to go see him. And, um, yeah, I think we were both shitting ourselves, to put it mildly, <laughs> you know, not knowing what to expect. Yeah. Um, and, again, within a few minutes, just realizing... This is kind of a person. Yeah, you walk into the room. Just talk us a little bit through that. Uh, that yeah, one. So Give us some insight into that moment. Yeah, yeah so I mean, we would sit there and there are, you wait in the room. When you get into the prison, yeah. which of course is a process itself, it's unlocking this door, then locking yeah. that door, then unlocking this one. It's big keys, it's noisy, it's not a nice place. Yeah. And you get sort of ushered into the, a, a sort of a small room, which is going to be the room where you interview him. And you wait and you wait and you wait. And then somebody goes off and fetches him and kind of he arrives in his, in his sort of a prison garb. Um, handcuffed? Um, is he restrained? No, or? no, no okay. handcuffs, no restraints. If I recall correctly, he was at Pretoria Prison at that point in time. He's now in a, in a different prison. Okay. Um, and yeah, and he's kind of very unassuming. You know, he's very quiet. Um, again, not what we expect if you look at if you get to know him first through the crime scenes. Yeah. And when you meet him, 
very, very, very different individuals. Yeah, I mean, how did that initial meeting go? I mean, do you recall how you broke the ice with the with with your first serial criminal? Sure, I'm trying to think back. Obviously, the very first bit would have been kind of convincing him to participate in the research okay. and explaining to him as to what it's about and what it's not about and getting his consent, etc., etc. Um, and but he's kind of the I almost want to say very happy-go-lucky. Um, you know, I don't think it did, I don't recall it took much convincing. I think he was probably bored and had nothing else to do. Yeah. Um, so why not? Somebody come yeah. and come and see him and chat to him, um, and just said, "Yeah, sure, no problem. He'll participate." And then from then on, we we set up our meetings. On that point, it would have been a weekly basis. Okay. Uh, we were able to video record the the interviews for to watch later, etc. Yeah, and, and almost spontaneously at the at the first interview, we started to actually get about the, about get into it beyond once we've dealt with the sort of technicalities of the mm. research kind of happily started talking about his various crimes you know okay. didn't take much prompting and kind of went into it yeah how do you build a conversation with somebody like this do you think about where you start what kind of information you move on to etc yeah look i think i think i'd like to think that if i had to go back now and do the same type of thing with a different person i would approach it differently with okay. all my years yeah, of experience yeah. well, etc yeah, yeah. and i think myself and my co-researcher were just kind of just nervous as hell and like yeah. i said shitting ourselves um and Kubis was easy in the sense that he just kind of assumed we wanted to talk about the crimes. And actually, we just wanted to get to know him as a person. So okay. I think if I remember correctly, we said, you know, you can start wherever you'd like. And okay. I think he just assumed we want to know about the crimes. And he started talking about the crimes. Okay. Uh, other ones, you know, started at a different point in, in their life. Mm. Um, and I think for him, I think that might show that for his crimes were very much about who he is. Yeah. Uh, and that's what he kind of went through. Uh, very kind of unemotionally talked about everything he did. Um, not a kind of he's very placid in that sense. Okay. You know, you never get the feeling like you're irritating him or you've angered him. He's just yeah. this same even emotional keel. Whether we're having chit chat about what happened last week since we've seen him or him killing someone, it's almost like the in a way a blunted emotion state. Yeah. Okay, I'll tell you about what I did. Uh, I did it, so why wouldn't I want to? Why wouldn't I? Why would I feel awkward about telling you about something I did? Yeah. Um, it's almost like a disconnect between normally the average person would feel awkward about saying one, two, three, four, five. Yeah. For him, it was just, but this is what I did. So why, why, why wouldn't I tell you? Yeah. Again, that lack of emotional connectedness that we would normally feel. All right. So we've got a sense of who this guy is. After the break, let's get into the crimes themselves and talk about exactly what it is that he did. Please visit our YouTube page and subscribe. We're available on iTunes, SoundCloud and Spotify. Simply search Profiler and you can engage with us on our social media pages, Twitter and Insta. Our handle is at Profiler Africa and please join the group on Facebook. We're keen to hear your feedback, field your questions and listen to suggested topics. So do get in touch. Um, we'll be back off the break. South Africa, 57 people are murdered every day. On Profiler, we bring you the stories of the criminals and the people who hunt them. 
I'm Paul Llewellyn. I'm a journalist curious to reveal the story behind serious crime on the continent. And joining me as always is Jared Labuskakni, former head of SAP's investigative psychology section. We are talking today about Kurbis Geldenhuis. You might know him better as the Norwood serial rapist. More aptly, he should be called the Norwood serial killer. Gerard, tell us about the crimes that this man committed. So, Paul, if we look at the crimes in the order that they were committed, uh, not necessarily that in the early phases people realized that there was a serial going on and these cases are connected. So his very first one was actually um, 12th of May 1989, about quarter past eight in the morning. He was off duty uh, in Benoni at his parents' house. And parents weren't there. He said he was watching TV. He was bored. His, the neighbors were away. And he decided to climb over the wall and kind of, I suppose, just look and see what's going on at the neighbor's house. Um, he then surprised the domestic helper who was there. He says he didn't know she was going to be there. He then strangles her and then sets her on fire. Now, what's interesting, so there's a 21-year-old a black female. Now, if you look at the crime scene picture, which we obviously can't show you, no. Um, it's black and white, which is interesting. So in those days, it's the days of apartheid. So black people had their photographs taken on crime scenes in black and white. And uh, for for white people's crime scenes, there were color photos because the expense of a color photograph is wow. in those days, I suppose, more justified on a white person than a black than a black victim. So her crime scene photographs are black. Now she's lying there um, naked from the waist down on her back. Um, she can you can see that she had a shirt or a t-shirt which has been partially burnt away. Now, if you look at his later crimes, what did he do with all of his victims? He at least raped them, if not rape and murder them. And I think back in those days, 1989, he would never have admitted as a policeman, as a white person in South Africa, to have having had sex with a black person. Okay. So my personal thoughts on that crime scene is that he, he probably also did at least attempt to have uh, sex with her. And that's why he wanted to burn the body. Yeah. And this he... was, again, right next door to his house. We're, talk, we're talking pre-DNA, so we're yeah. not talking about the DNA that we use nowadays to link people to crime scenes. At best in those days, um, we had blood grouping, which is really, are you, you know, O positive or not? Um, which it, it doesn't really help to, to... So what kind of key evidence would you look for in this era? Uh, fingerprints still would have been yeah. a big thing. Uh, what items are stolen? It's pre-cell phone, you know, of course, which would have been a nice other link help factor to try and catch, identify a suspect. So really, they would have been looking at fingerprints and eyewitnesses okay. uh, and what items were stolen that's, that might turn up somewhere. Yeah. And, and, and just to say, I mean, he didn't burn any of his other victims. So that's yeah. what kind of really leads you to that conclusion. And it was really just the top half of her body that's burned, not, yeah. not, the, not the room that was really set on fire. Yeah. So how did he evolve as a, as a yeah. killer? So then we kind of have a period of, that was May 1989, the first murder victim. Then we jump forward to October 1991. So basically more than two years later. And what does he start off with? He starts off with housebreakings. Okay. So he doesn't start off again with the murder. So again, a bit strange. We have a murder. Period of, of time, two years where nothing's happening that we know of, of course. Yeah. And then housebreakings, housebreaking, then rape. You know, housebreaking and rape. And then Did you ask him why, that, why, why murder and then back to kind of a build-up? No, I can't, I can't recall. I might have, but I can't recall what his okay. answer would have been. Okay. So October 30th, 1991, we have a house break-in and theft now in Norwood, where the, most of his crimes were committed. Yeah. It was a, a white uh, male. And of course, he is based at the Norwood Police yeah. Barracks, as we said. So show. again, geographically operating around where he yeah. lives. We know that nowadays is a common feature. Exactly. So it was actually a white male, 32 years old. He broke in through the window, stole some CDs. And actually, the, the victim thought that the CDs had been stolen by telecom workers who had been working in his flat. Okay. So that's just a housebreaking and theft. And in those days, 
you notice when CDs go missing. <laughs> yeah. Nowadays, if somebody took my whole CD collection, it would take me months to discover that. <laughs> and, and, and of course, a lot of these, again, a lot of these crimes are only being realized later on as potentially being part of his series. In fact, some of these, I think, only when he pointed them out did the police realize, oh, this was actually part of this, all of these offenses yes. that were seen. So we're okay. discussing them just in the order that they occurred. And we're confident from discussion with him that between 89 and 91, there weren't any other incidents. Well, none that he says. Okay, fine. So now we jump forward four days. So we have the first outbreak in 30 October. Okay. Four days later, 4th of November, a white female, 35 years old, again gets access to the open window and steals 20 CDs, a portable CD player, and a BMW car. Okay. And he takes that car back to the barracks. And he brings it back uh, on the 5th of November. Parks the car again downstairs at the block of flats, goes into the block of flats, and returns the keys. Okay. All right, so clearly the car theft was not for his own financial purposes. Hmm. And what does he do? So the 4th of November, he goes in, steals the stuff. So this is all about fantasy. I know in next week's episode, we're doing a specific episode on violent fantasy, but this is all now his fantasy starting to emerge, essentially. So he puts the keys back the next night. Then the following night, the 6th of November, 3 o'clock in the morning, he goes back into that same flash. So this is now the third time through the open window, and he says, I went there to go and rape this lady because he knew there was a lady staying there. Okay. Would he, would he do any, any kind of stalk? Was there a stalking component to identify? Not stalking the sense that he'd be in the streets, notice a victim, follow her to where she stays, but he would often go back to the same house a few times. Okay. And you'll see that more prevalent in some of the okay. later cases okay. we discuss. So the third time he's there, 6th of November, quarter past three, he goes in with the intention of rape. He says he enjoyed the process of breaking in. And often we find that for some of these guys who commit their crimes inside the victim's houses, that breaking in process is almost part of the excitement mm. for them. Um, the victim tried to, de- to delay him through chat and conversation. He says he didn't kill this victim because she couldn't identify him. Uh, and he got undressed before he even woke up that victim to rape her. Okay. Uh, was, would, would he cover his face here in this incident then? Uh, no, I think he just the lights were off. Oh, I see. Okay. So now we jump forward to the same month, 26th of November. So about 20-so days later, mm-hmm. 2 o'clock in the morning, this was a 68-year-old white female. He'd been inside this flat before uh, and taken some money from the handbag. So again, we, we had this pattern of him almost like doing a reconnaissance of some of the places he's going to finally target a victim in. He went to the open window, and that was his forte. He loved climbing up drain pipes. He hits the victim on the head with a blunt object, which in, in later cases he used his service pistol. So it might have been his service pistol here. We're not sure. Tells her to lie in the bed. He undresses her. Then he gets undressed and he rapes her. Afterwards, he asks her for money. He rapes her a second time, covers her with a blanket, and then says to her, good night, sleep well, according to him when I, when I interviewed him. And he says kind of funny things that did bring a smile to his face. He says, no, you know, the victim then asked me during the rape, um, in other words, can I tickle your backside? The victim saying to him, which he kind of thought, he says he thought that was funny. Um, Again, he didn't kill the victim because he says he, cause the, the lights were off and she couldn't identify him. And he didn't take anything at that particular incident. Okay. Um, although the first time he broke in, he took Not stuff. a particular victim type emerging yeah. here. Which is, so this is really all about the thrill of breaking in, the thrill of the crime mm. itself. And, and he's not, it doesn't necessarily need to be a 
20 to 30 year old dark haired white female no. so we had if you see we'll see in the right in the end he had a victim span that ranged from 16 years ranged from 16 years old to i think 68 was we'll see now whether there's a, a older victim okay um one black victim then white victims the people that he sometimes just broke into was white males but of course he didn't do anything contact wise to them so that's 26 november then we jump forward to 16th of, De- of december of that year 1991 27-year-old white female, and this is now the second murder in his series of murders, mm. um, with the, 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 the domestic helper being the first one in 89. He goes into the sliding door again, said he'd be previously been inside this house, and he knew that multiple people lived in this house. And it was actually a commune for university students. Okay. Um, and on the previous occasion, he, one of the previous occasions, he'd actually, uh, someone had seen him uh, entering this premises, and, he, and he'd fled as a result thereof. Okay. Um, what, how does he talk about his general state of mind at this time? We've seen it escalate very quickly over two months mm. from, breaking in, from breaking and entering um, to, to him committing his first murder. Well, this period in his life, he must have, surely he was quite obsessed by this component of his personality. I think for me, if I, of the, the times that I spent interviewing Corbus, I kind of got the idea that I spoke about an emo- emotional bluntness earlier on. Hmm. That he kind of, when you when you speak to him, it's almost as if like he doesn't have the same emotional range that you and I have. Yeah. Even even his facial expressions when you chat to him. Yeah. And I think for him, committing the crimes, whether it was the break-ins, the rapes, the murders, was probably the only time he really felt anything. Okay. And I think he might have that whether it's just his heart beating faster, the adrenaline pushing through his veins, it was for him when he felt something, when he experiences perhaps being alive maybe is yeah. when he's committing his crimes so tell us about this first murder then all right so um the first murder in 1991 uh, so again you know he's been now twice actually in this property people have seen him before um and he saw this particular victim and he said i'm going to come back and rape her so on the day in question he went into the room he goes into the victim's room turns the light on she wakes up he, he pulls to, on her duvet and she screams he then hits her on the head with his pistol twice his police pistol he removes her panties he said he tried to rape her, but he premature ejaculated. And you'll actually see that this is often an issue with him, is that he struggles with the sexual part with his victims. Okay. He then shoots her point blank in the head while he's on top of her um, and, and then kind of covers her up again with the blanket. In fact, the, uh, her fellow housemates kind of stuck their head into the door once or twice after he'd left and thought she was just asleep, okay. uh, not seeing that there's a blunt a contact wound on the side of her head just okay. in front of her ear. So... That was uh, then. Now the next murder is in December, so another were thirtieth of December. So that's so again, you know, barely uh, fourteen days later. Yeah, um, in that same month, climbs up a drain pipe, goes into a room. Um, he hears someone in the next room wake up. He turns on the light. She screams and again hits her on the head twice with a pistol, and she's quiet. He then tells her to get to the bed. He undresses her and he does successfully rape her. They both smoke cigarettes afterwards. Um, the victim says she wants to go to the toilet and he then says to her, okay, go to the bathroom and take a bath. And he kind of stands there at the door frame smoking while she's in the bath and then basically walks up to her and shoots her. So her body's discovered in the actual bath upstairs. Must have just been absolutely terrifying for her. Yeah, absolutely. So now we have about a five-month gap. So that was end of December, 8th of May, 1992, 74-year-old white victim. So this, yeah, this was the oldest victim that he had. 74-year-old white female victim goes in the sliding door of the house. And this lady's um, place where she stayed 
was two units away from her his girlfriend, his fiance's house. Okay. So again, there's always some association he has with the places where these crimes have been committed. So um, he goes through the rooms, um, looks around, goes into the bedroom, turns the light on, uh, he touches the victim, and she wakes up and, and she screams. Again, hits her on the head with his pistol, uh, and she grabs the firearm. He shoots her then literally in the face, I think even in the mouth, um, and he picks up the shell casing uh, from the bullet that was ejected. It was a pistol, as I said. Um, he tries to take her car, but he couldn't get it to start. He then waited about 30 minutes inside the residence until it was time for him to catch his train. Okay. Kind of, again, goes through the, goes through the cupboards and, and, and ruffles through, but doesn't really take anything. In this instance, no, no rape. Yeah. The actual sexual pleasure he's getting is from killing. It's not from intercourse. Yeah, I mean, he said that he kills the victims because some could identify him, some couldn't. Um, okay. But then, you know, you can also wear a balaclava, but then nobody can identify you. So the sexual pleasure is power control. Yeah, I think pretty much for him, power and control, experimentation. He did say, for example, with the one, he wanted to have sex without a condom to see what that's like. Okay. You know, so again, it's, it's, it's him of just, it's almost like he's experiencing life through his crimes in a way. So we jump now to the 3rd of July. It's about a month and a bit late, two months later in 1992. Uh, he's after he'd shot the previous old lady. And this was a, a housebreaking and theft case. A 22-year-old male's house goes in the front door and basically just takes a few items from the handbag. Now remember, these cases we're only discovering once he is confessing later on. Then we jump again in July, about the middle of July, five minutes to eight in the morning, 7.55. A white female, 16 years old, and this was his last victim. He uh, goes to the back door. He had never been inside this house before. Um, it was near his parents' home, so again, it's away from the Norwood Barracks, but back close to where his first murder we know occurred, which was the, 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 that black female that he killed. Um, he had uh, first tried to sell this young lady beauty products, knocked on the front door. She wasn't interested. He goes to the back door, uh, and she comes out and sees him. He confronts her. She tries to run away. He grabs her, tells her to lie in the bed, and says to her, I want some money. Um, pulls off her blouse, tells her to go to get undressed, and... and um, uh, she then lies in the bed. He drops his pants to his knees, but he couldn't penetrate her. Uh, but he did ejaculate between his legs. So again, the sort of sexual dysfunctions that were seen across some mm, of his crimes. Kind of impotence. Is that, was how it, do you explain that psychologically? We don't know if he had the same problems with his fiancée when they tried to have sex. Was it the pressure of the moment? Mm -hmm. um, was that an issue with his relationship? So he thought, you know, with a stranger, he... You know, it wouldn't matter if he didn't mm. perform. He was going to kill them anyway. They wouldn't know who he mm. is. So um, premature ejaculates. He then sees the gardener outside and literally puts the gun against her forehead between the eyes and shoots her. Um, and in fact, if you look at the crime scene picture, it's almost this classic textbook image of a what we call a stellate bursting of the skin when someone has a contact wound against you oh, know, really? your head. Yeah. Um, and then basically just takes her wallet on the way out and then went to the ATM and drew, I think, 120 rand. Interesting. Some some of the images we can put up are the kind of hands, the sketches of the crime scenes. Are these kind of crude early crime scene sketches? No. So what done was, by yeah. the done by the cops or was, is this him? No, this is actually him. So okay. I had a student, uh, Debbie Kalaris, who's a psychologist. She's now living in Australia. Who did a doctorate interviewing serial murderers about their geographical behaviors. Okay. And she asked them to draw what they can remember about the crime scene, where it was okay. in relation to where they were staying. So. 
the, the, the crude pictures you're talking about here is actually him drawing those pictures okay. um, about where his crime scenes were and, and in relation to other, okay, other relevant So go factors. online and take a look at those. Now, what's interesting about this final case is we, we could ballistically tell that he, she's lying on a double bed, her sort of her legs off the bed, the upper body's on the bed. Mm. But where she's lying and where the police found her, that wasn't the position she was in when she was shot. Her body was actually lying slightly to the left on the mm. bed. Where he then all shoots of that her. Big, yeah. So and there's he, a big pool of blood next to her if you're looking at the yeah. image. So. And then he positions her body more in a different position afterwards. And then he places the house keys kind of above the pubic hair region on her body. So he posed this particular body. So he kind of had a bit of a posing thing. So even some of his other victims getting the one in the bath, then shooting her in the head. Yeah. The other ones that he covered with the uh, with the blankets. So always after the fact, for a lot of his murder victims, doing something. And this this could be one of those components that's evolving. Yeah, yeah. Uh, kind yeah. of is the evolution of his particular fantasy. Yeah. So if he hadn't been caught, would he done more elaborate things? Then yeah. so what he did with his final victim we just discussed was a bit more the most elaborate yeah. in terms of rearranging the body afterwards for no practical purposes. Yeah. And that was his last murder. So if you look at it again, we've got from 12 May 1989 a murder. Then it goes. 1991, housebreaking theft, housebreaking and theft, vehicle theft, rape, rape, murder, 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 housebreaking and theft, murder. So definitely settling into this pattern of, of murdering people. So if you look at it, the majority of his cases um, were in 1991, a clear pattern that picks up with murders being the main feature, rapes and murders, as, as things went on. And ultimately, this is again why we say it's a bit ironic people call him the Norwood serial rapist. Because actually, only two of his cases was it just a rape without a murder. The rest were yeah, rape and murders. For sure. What, was, was he a um, trophy keeper? No. So he didn't, as far as we know, keep anything that belonged from the crime scenes, belonging to the victims, um, that, we're, that we're aware of. Okay. Any sense of remorse from him? None whatsoever. When we talk about this kind of emotionless state that he had. No. He spoke about the crimes without any emotions. wasn't a boasting. He just spoke about them as if as if I was telling you about my day yesterday. Um, no sense of guilt, uh, remorse. He could probably say to you, "It's wrong to have done that," but there's no emotional juice behind it. You know, motivating those types of words. So after the break, we'll just talk a little bit about how he was eventually caught. What was the what were the pieces of evidence that ultimately led the police to his door? Um, and, but I also wanted to just dig more into you know, your experience of him and, and getting to know this man. Please visit our YouTube page and subscribe. We're available on iTunes, SoundCloud and Spotify. Simply search Profiler and you can engage with us on our social media pages, Twitter and Insta. Our handle is at Profiler Africa and please join the group on Facebook. We're keen to hear your feedback, field your questions and listen to suggested topics. So do get in touch. South Africa, 57 people are murdered every day. On Profiler, we bring you the stories of the criminals and the people who hunt them. We've been talking about the Norwood serial rapist, the Norwood serial killer. Gerard, how do they catch this guy? 
they started to suspect that it could be a policeman. I think partially because of some of the bullet casings, if I recall correctly, okay. that were found at the scene. And I have it in my memory that even a partial boot print, which was uh, looked like a police boot. So actually at one point that they decided to do is to fingerprint everybody at the barracks. And he, he says to me that he was standing in that queue to be, be fingerprinted. He knew it was they were fingerprinting people because of these murders. And he actually said that, you know what, if I'm going to get to the front and it's my turn, I'll just tell them that it's me that they're looking for. And then for some reason, they stopped fingerprinting. And he was like, well, okay, there was that. Wow. And he carried on. In fact, so there's some stories that he even had to guard some of his own crime scenes as a policeman on duty. Um, another colleague I once met on a course I was presenting who was stationed at Norwood Barracks at the time of these crimes um, actually said, you know, he, he would remember how, you know, all of them were going to go out and do stakeouts and look for the suspect. And he would say, no, no, it's okay. I, I'm going to stay back here and guard the ladies. Um, so that's kind of just some interesting little uh, little yeah. points uh, regarding this. So eventually they started to realize it could be him. They started to put the patterns together of where was he, where were his movements when some of these other crimes occurred. And they kind of thought this was the guy. And he actually says he was at home off duty and he got a phone call from, I think it was his commander or somebody saying, listen, where, you know, where you now, please stay there. We're going to come and see you. And he says he knew what they were coming for. Yeah. And as they got there, yeah, it's me. What's interesting is maybe this also speaks to that complete lack of, you know, that, that neutrality of personality is that he not only doesn't feel for these victims, but he doesn't necessarily feel for himself, maybe. Mm, for what's going to happen to him, yeah, exactly. I think you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, which is it's such a... I mean, it's curious when you turn that lens on somebody's ability to totally disconnect from their human emotions and what have you, that that doesn't necessarily relate to, only relate to a victim. It can relate to, it relates to how they relate to themselves or how they view themselves as well. And that's very important when you have to interview these kinds of suspects. Because for the rest of us, for most of us, you would try, you know, don't you feel bad about what you've done? Yeah. Or, you know, what about the poor victim's family? And where, you know, for, for normal suspects who have the normal range of emotions, that might have some kind of a pressure. This guy, if you go on that route, it's not going to have any effect on him. How do you have a conversation of, with somebody about empathy when they don't? Yeah. They have they have no perception of the concept of empathy. Yeah, yeah. A good question for my ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so uh, so he's told to sit where he sit tight. We're coming to see you, and yeah. he and he immediately confesses yeah. to the crime. So he's arrested within I think six days after the last murder. He's already done a confession on the 21st of July, 1992. He's done a confession. There's actually a nice video recording of him doing a pointing out, okay. which is when he goes to all the various scenes and says, this is where I did this, this is where I did that. And I think that's when they started to pull together all these other crimes that were part of his, uh, that were non-rape or murder related. Uh, eventually, he was con convicted. He got five death sentences, three life sentences, and 23 years. Now, of course, back then we weren't, putting the death sentence into effect Practice. and those were later translated into five additional life sentences okay. so eight life sentences effectively plus 23 uh, years for the smaller crimes uh, that he had actually committed what are what are some of the most interesting things that you take out of your interviews with him um again because of the fact he didn't really have this emotional concern about what he's telling you he was quite open to tell everything really mm. um, so that was interesting to get this sort of unfiltered well I suppose you could reasonably unfiltered kind of um, he wasn't you know engaging in impression management because he didn't think he had to do that no. he wasn't feeling guilty or bad and nervous about what he wants to tell you so in a way getting this unfiltered what are some of the kind of surprising details we've mentioned a couple but um, more of the surprising details that came out of those conversations with him 
Um, just again, that he, that he wasn't covering up certain things that he did. You know, some offenders will tell you about certain behaviors and not others that they did do in the crime. Yeah. But like, you know, when I mentioned earlier how he said the one victim asked him, you know, can, can she tickle his backside? And yeah. he kind of had a bit of a chuckle at that. Yeah. And how he sort of said to the one old, one of his old lady victims is, you know, do you have AIDS? Okay. Um, which he also later sort of had a bit of a chuckle about, you know, oh, that's funny because she's a 70 something year old woman. Why would she? Yeah. Um, so uh, in this unfiltered sort of, Telling about his crimes. Now, he, he's happy to talk about the crimes themselves. How much does he reflect on himself and his lack of emotion, his psychological mm. state? You know, later on, when I went to go back and interview him in 2011 or for a parole application, um, you know, I remember asking him, what, so what would you do if you got parole? He said, well, I, I would like to work in the hospitality industry and maybe work on cruise ships one day, which is like, dude, that is never going to happen. That is like the most unrealistic mm. plan. But it's, I almost got the feeling like he knew he had to say something that's kind of socially acceptable. Yeah. So again, it's a case of, and you see this with psychopaths. Yeah. I don't have the emotional insight to know, to, to say certain things or not say certain things, which our emotions often guide us to do or not do. But I know I have to say something. So what do I think is the right thing to say mm. at this particular point in time? But you can kind of tell there's no emotional insight backing what he what he has to I say. I, th- I think, like I said, the crimes were about him and what it makes him feel. Yeah, it's not in the sense of I want to boast so people see me as the Norwood so and so or mm. I'm the guy that did that. There's not a boastfulness because I don't think he cares what you and I think yeah. at all. Okay, so I think it's purely this internally focused. Oh, that was fun. Oh, that was interesting. I felt excited when I did that, or I felt something when I did that. Oh, I, I like that. I didn't like that. Okay. Um, even in prison, he didn't really interact with any other prisoners. He wasn't kind of living off this image of, hey, guys, I am the serial killer so-and-so to get yeah. to lever some, leverage some advantage in the prison environment. Yeah. Um, and you just don't build up anything with him. So I spent literally years going to interview him. I was probably, besides his parents, the only people that saw him on a regular basis for a couple of years. And at the end of the research... When I said to him, well, Kerbis, the research is over. I can't just obviously come back anymore because the research is finished. Um, so um, this is my last Thursday. Okay, thanks very much. Bye. Not even like, well, jeez, mm. man, it was really nice getting to know you, Gerard. Um, yeah. Going to miss you. You know, you know you've, you've been seeing me for the past few years. And so there's no sense you of don't forming a relationship. Build up there. that. Like, I, I, I would say you don't get the emotional credit. Yeah, and okay. even as we were talking, you know, he would say sometimes he would get pen pals. You know, either, you know, in the old days of pen pals, mm. you know, you'd, I'd look up somebody in the back of a magazine and write to them or they might write to you. And at some point he would tell people what he did and then they wouldn't write back. And he's like, OK, whatever. But some he would have a bit of a, a email communications, uh, sorry, mail communications with the person. And, and for example, he said the one day, the one day he then said, listen, I've just got a fiance and he doesn't want me to write to you anymore because we're going to get married. So I can't write to you anymore. I said, well, of course, how do they make you feel? Oh, no, she doesn't have to write to me. She doesn't want to. Was, the rest of us might say, yeah, well, I was a bit peed off or disappointed mm. or sad because I thought, you know, I was going to have a nice pen pal friend or you know, angry with the boyfriend. No, I was like, oh, no, she doesn't have to. Yeah. Again, no credit. How does he view his relationship with the victim? You know, are these people, are these important figures in his life post the crime? Mm. I think the victims were merely an object that allowed him to get that sensation that he was perhaps looking for whenever he committed the crime. Okay. I don't think he ever saw the victims really as people. Okay. Um, they were just the vehicle by which 
oh, I want to feel something inside of me. Well, doing this makes me feel something inside mm-hmm. of me. So almost like to say his default position was a lack of feeling anything. Yeah. And when he committed the crimes, whether it was the break-ins, the rapes, the robbery, there was an emotional spike, which was a sensation of some sorts mm. that was maybe him feeling alive, stroke, emotional, emotions, yeah, yeah. etc. No particular disdain for women. No, no, it didn't seem to have any negative regard to women. This wasn't about anger towards women, hatred towards women. Mm. It was just, I can feel something when I do this. Yeah. What about some, some interesting tidbits from this case? Anything, yeah. anything stand out? Yeah. So obviously that he was a policeman doing this, and we haven't, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, where we've had, we've had serial rapists who are policemen, but I don't think we've had another serial murderer who was a policeman that I that I can recall. So that was interesting, of course. Yes. But then secondly, which was very, very interesting, and perhaps from a scientific point of view, is that, as I said before, we didn't have DNA processing, mm. forensic DNA in those days. All we had was blood grouping. So in other words, are you O positive, etc., etc., which isn't the most useful form of, of, of um, forensic use of, of, of blood evidence that because we had. Because there are such few, few yeah. blood groups. Mm. Now, but also, um, the grouping from a semen differed from the grouping from his blood. So his semen was O-positive and his blood was A-positive, which is ridiculously rare. In fact, the only other person I know who have had that was Andrei Chikatilo, a yeah. Russian serial murderer, yes. which actually was part of the reason why originally he was excluded yeah, from his investigation. Absolutely. So interesting to find out, is that a serial murder thing? Yeah. Or has it occurred in other people that have had that same issue? How do you feel about him? Um... You know, obviously what he did is horrific and, and the, the victims must never be forgotten in, that, in this process. But I really, in a way, feel sorry for him because I kind of almost imagine him to use a metaphor. It's like a person who has no taste buds. Mm. And you can be eating the most wonderful meals. It all tastes the same to you yeah. and bland. And your life is bland. I mean, we all think about how we feel about food and what it means to us. It's celebrations. It's different tastes. It's sweet things. It's sour things. It's this... Mm. It, it really makes your life almost colorful and meaningful. Now imagine if you didn't have that. If your, your taste buds didn't work and you saw the world in black and white. And the only time that you could experience the world in color or with a little bit of taste of some sorts was like for Kubus Kaltness when he's committing his, his murders yeah. or crimes in general. And I, anyway, and I feel sorry for him that that's kind of his life is just bland without any emotional experiences except... Maybe, for example, when he was when he's committing these acts. Is there, you know, when you spoke with him, you were a young, a young man in the early days of your career. Not saying that you're not a young man now, Jared. But is there anything that you would do differently today, or anything that you would ask him today that you maybe didn't then? Well, you know, when I went back to interview him, so I, I was interviewing him from about 1996 till 2000 maybe 2001 okay. um, and then when I went back obviously that was before I joined the police that was still when I was working at Adverse Corpus Psychiatric Hospital but when I went back to see him in 2011 obviously I had then been in the police for 10 years doing this kind of work for a parole uh, report that, I, that they'd asked me to write and then I think I asked a lot of the questions okay. that I didn't back then okay. which is the stuff that I put to be mentioning into this into yeah. this interview that's a little nuggets of you know, when he went back at this time, it was for that purpose. When he for went sure. back at that time, it was for that purpose. Okay. So then I kind of had that opportunity to okay. go more delving into the crimes. Because yeah. my initial research was about getting to know him 
whether he spoke about the crimes was he did in his case, but it was kind of almost not what I was there for. You know, I wanted to get to know the serial. You know he's a serial murderer. Yeah. You want to understand the man. So when I went parole, him. I literally took my laptop with me and the PowerPoint presentation, which I'd been using for years when I was giving training, and I sat and asked <laughs> questions and filled it into my sort of presentation as we went. And that's when I think I followed up with the stuff that I'd always wondered about yeah. that I hadn't gotten previously. So, Jared, just to conclude, how much of, you know, how much of your skill as a profiler, as a psychologist who studies the, the mind of the serial killer, how much of that knowledge do you attribute to your time with Quibus? I mean, you must have taken so much from it. Definitely in the early days, when this is before I started in the police, um, it was massively insightful to be interviewing these people, definitely in terms of getting to know their interpersonal style. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily going too much into the crimes, because that really wasn't what my research was focusing on at that point. So definitely, of course, this really helped prepare me for when I did eventually go into the police. You know, I had experience that beyond anybody in the unit, nobody else really had, which was really spent in South Africa, at least, it was just interviewing these, these types of guys, getting a feel for what they're like. So one day when I had to come across them in an investigation, I'm not having that nervous anxiety about meeting them like I had when I started yeah. the research. Does catching these guys and incarcerating them and having the opportunity to speak to them, does it improve our ability to catch them? I think definitely it's worthwhile, and, and it's something that we never really had enough time to do in SAPS because we were so busy with active cases. Now, to go and spend a couple of days interviewing serial murderers in prison just became a time issue. So I do think definitely in understanding how these guys think, and again, depending on how much they're prepared to tell you about their cases, it is it is a worthwhile exercise to try and do. So, Kubis Heldenheis, the Norwood serial rapist. Certainly, I think we should refer to him as the Norwood serial killer because... If there's one thing he was good at, it was killing. We'll be back again next week. Thank you, Gerard. Uh, tell your friends to catch us on brandlive.co.za or search Profiler Africa on YouTube. And please subscribe to our page. We're also available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Simply search Profiler. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Profiler Africa and join our Facebook group. We, we, uh, we have posted some really interesting stuff around this case uh, on our social media pages. So go and take a look at those images. And uh, yeah, please do get in touch. Any questions that you have, any particular cases that you'd like us to talk about um yeah our ears are wide open thanks for listening and pleasant dreams